When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For me, acting morally means doing what is right. But how do I know what is right? How do I know what is moral? In the 18th and early 19th century, there was a school of philosophy called common sense philosophy. They had an easy answer to this question. The notion was that basically our, our sensibility or the way in which our feelings have been constructed for us um, enables us to be moral creatures. That is University of Cambridge history professor Richard Burke. According to the moral philosophers, we already know what is moral and what isn't, just by virtue of being alive. If we're repulsed by the idea of stealing from our neighbors, then that means it isn't moral. But what happens when two people don't feel the same about the morality of an action? What if one person's view is that stealing is moral if you steal from the rich and give it to the poor? But in another person's view, Stealing is immoral no matter what. For 18th century Prussian philosopher Immanuel Kant, this was a problem. In his 1785 book, Groundwork of the Metaphysics of Morals, he set out to understand how morality could be a universal law, something that didn't change from person to person. The, the really basic thought of Kant is, if you're going to have morals, Surely we have to distinguish this from mere taste or whim. I mean, it can't be that um, it can't be the case of I don't I don't happen to like immoral behaviours. It must be Kant wants to say that these are um, absolutely unacceptable. Or to put it another way, uh, a moral obligation is necessitated. It must be the case. It's a binding norm hence an obligation in the original sense uh, of the word. Uh, and therefore, it's, it's almost like a law. I mean, it is an absolute restriction on behavior, um, which says this is wrong. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Richard Burke to discuss Immanuel Kant's Groundwork of the Metaphysics of Morals. Immanuel Kant was born in 1724 in Königsberg, and he spent his whole life there. He died in 1804, so it was a reasonably uh, long life. Königsberg was part of the German Kingdom of Prussia. It was a somewhat isolated place in the sense that it wasn't physically connected to the rest of Prussia. But Königsberg was an important trading seaport that connected Europe to Russia. And for Kant, it was a great place. So great that he never left. He never traveled abroad and instead spent his entire life in his native city. He's born into more or less what we might, uh, since the 19th century, call a working class family. Um, that's to say, it wasn't at all elevated. He went to an ordinary school to begin with, but his talents were spotted, his intellectual talents, that is, uh, were spotted by a minister in the church. Um, and that enabled him to get a scholarship to a, um, a high school 
um, a gymnasium, as it's called in Germany, and really a classical gymnasium, and that was the Collegium Fridericianum. The early part of Kant's career is, well, unremarkable. I mean, he starts off really as a natural scientist and metaphysician, and he remains as a metaphysician, developing theories of knowledge and so on and so forth. Um, uh, but his first great work doesn't appear until 1781, and that's the Critique of Pure Reason. In the Critique of Pure Reason, Kant explores the fundamental nature and limits of reality. For more information on this text, you can listen to our episode with Harvard professor Michael Rosen, where we discuss this book in detail. But long before he wrote The Critique of Pure Reason, Kant subscribed to the philosophies of his day, including common sense philosophy. At that point, Kant was prepared to credit the idea that uh, the standards of moral behavior were to be found in sensibility or feeling. So um, it wasn't reason that gave us moral norms, but rather it was the way in which our sensibility was constituted. So in other words, one doesn't um, listen to one's reason to tell one that murder is bad. One feels revolted by the prospect. According to common sense philosophy, this is common sense. This philosophy was a more emotionally driven way of reasoning. Moral philosophers believed we could form norms about moral behavior by consulting our own feelings. If you feel bad about an action, it must be immoral. These ideas were championed by influential Scottish Enlightenment thinkers, such as Francis Hutcheson, David Hume, and Adam Smith. So it is very much one's sensibility responding. But actually Kant, um, relatively soon, abandoned that position comprehensively never to return to it and became, I suppose, what one would say, uh, what one would call a moral rationalist. Uh, and his commitment thereto is represented by his um, first great work of moral philosophy, which is the groundwork for the metaphysics of morals, which was published in 1785. In Groundwork of the Metaphysics of Morals, Kant departs from the idea that morals can be based on feelings, habits, and customs. He believed that this way of thinking was too subjective and would lead to too many competing morals. I might feel bad about an action, but what if you didn't? Whose feelings were more moral? Kant was in search of something more concrete, and to get there, he believed we must consult our reason. And the groundwork for the metaphysics of morals is laying out for laying out really, as it says, the groundwork, a grundlegung, a laying of the foundations um, for uh, moral thought um, indebted to pure rationality. So, what did people believe about morality um, before Kant, or what's the, what's the long story of where our moral ideas come from? Now, this is the essential question. I would say, if one were to sketch the situation in broad outlines, that Kant is responding to, roughly speaking, three rival theories. Um, one of them begins with the ancients, and that is the idea that if you want to know what um, virtue is, you must ask the question, what is happiness? All ancient schools of philosophy, one way or another, connected um, virtue to happiness. Um, Aristotle did, uh, the Stoics did, Epicureanism did. So that's a sort of staple belief. If you want to inquire what the, the good life for the human being is, you must ask, you know, um, what is the happy life for them? So goodness and happiness are conflated. 
This is the first theory of morals that Kant deviates from in his text. Second of all, um, Kant is departing from a, for want of a better term, native tradition of moral thought, a German tradition of moral thought. And prior to Kant, there had been a sort of tradition of um, constructing um, moral uh, duties um, in terms of thinking about um, what was prescribed by reason, so what was rationalist, but it was about how reason could tell us to perfect ourselves. Both of these theories were goal-oriented. The first aimed toward the goal of happiness, and the second aimed toward the goal of human perfection. If you are working toward those goals, the philosophies state, then you are acting morally. The third reason was common sense, the idea that our feelings enabled us to be moral. The best way of putting it is, our sensibility was designed for morality. So you'll see the theological component there. There's a design element. We were designed for this. But the effective point is that our um, passions dispose us to benevolence, and benevolence is the foundation of morality. These were the three main theories of morality in Kant's time. But Kant didn't feel completely comfortable with any of them. He argued that they were all essentially arbitrary. If you try to say that um, virtue resides in happiness, well, then, of course, uh, happiness is in the eyes of the beholder. So your happiness is not my happiness. So how can this be a fundamental norm of behavior? Kant wanted a law of morality, something similar to the laws of nature or the laws of mathematics or the biblical Ten Commandments. The phraseology of the commandments gives you the flavor of it. The flavor of it. Thou shalt not do X. Um, thou shalt not abuse thy neighbor. I mean, um, so this is not, as it were, um, something that you fancy not doing. This is something which you absolutely must not do. So once you have this criterion of absolutely not, uh, an absolute injunction to, or an, abs- an absolute injunction to avoid, um, then you're dealing with something which is beyond contingency, beyond the whimsical differences we, which we might have about happiness. There are, for Kant, um, rules or principles which would stipulate what correct uh, behavior is. And so to that extent, since he's focusing on that element, he's departing from um, all comers. These previous philosophies focused on the goal of morality, moral behavior aimed toward happiness or perfection or a good feeling. But Kant turns his attention away from the goal and towards the motive or reason for action. He believed the motive was what defined moral behavior. If you want to want to understand the source of standards of morality, what Kant called the supreme principle of morality, you must look to motive. You must look to what has prompted you to undertake this behavior. Uh, so it's not the outcomes, it's where that um, action comes from. Okay, so the motivation is a real grounding that's universal. Um, so could could you tell us about um, what the book is like, kind of as a whole? It's not a very long work, um, but it does have this characteristic Kantian style. No one could argue that it's um, an easy read. Um, it's 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 a mixture of um, um, dense and complicated, but it is brief. 
Um, its structure is as follows. Um, there's um, a preface just setting out what kind of approach to moral philosophy he's developing. Um, and there he basically says, well, here I'm going to focus on what our reason can tell us about morals. I'm not going to be concerned with any um, anything empirical. Ethics and morals can be broken down into two parts, empirical and non-empirical. If knowledge about something is empirical, it is based on learned experience through our senses. Non-empirical knowledge comes from theory and pure logic. When it comes to ethics and morals, Kant wants to focus on the non-empirical. He is interested in using reason to learn about morals. So he's starting with um, pure, what he calls pure inquiry or rational inquiry into the foundation of, of morals. That's essentially the preface. And then it's divided into three parts. And those three parts are as follows. First of all, in part one, what is our common, what is it, what is our common understanding of what uh, moral value is or wherein moral value lies? Uh, and he wants to say, despite the fact that he's departing from all precedent traditions, you, me and everyone else actually do have a good, strong sense of what the sources of moral value um, um, are or what the source really, I should say, is. Like the common sense philosophers, Kant believes all humans have an inherent sense of morality. That's what he discusses in part one. Then uh, part two is um, a, an analytical um, development of that core insight. That is to say, philosophically, he picks apart the content of the concept of morality, elucidating that into um, ever more refined components. And um, it's at that stage of the book that he uh, develops his uh, um, formulations for the categorical imperative, as it's called. Kant's categorical imperative is also known as the supreme principle of morality. According to Kant, we can measure our actions against the supreme principle of morality to see if we are acting from a place of morality. His question now in part three is, is this actually humanly possible? So what people forget about Kant altogether as a moral thinker um, is the massive dimension of scepticism which underpins his inquiry. Now, in the end, he's not a sceptic because his answer is going to be not only is this um not only is this possible, but actually we have we must believe it. Um, but so just to clarify, he does believe it's possible, moral action, and he um, does believe that uh, we must credit this possibility. Um, but he thinks this is an enormous struggle for the human being. And we are more often than not failing as moral creatures. We are living in a veil of corruption and we are perpetually tempted by the antithesis of our moral willing. And our moral will, if I can put it that way, is um, almost... Um, almost um, in all cases overcome by the obverse of the moral will, which is the life of sensibility or what we would just think of as, te as temptation, you know, the desires of pleasure, you know. In other words, Kant believes we all know how to act morally, but it's almost impossible for us to do so because when we think we're acting morally, we're tricking ourselves. So our ability to talk ourselves into the idea that we are serving the goodwill when really uh, we are servicing what Kant calls um, the dear self, uh, that's to say your own subjectivity, which um, subtly insinuates itself into um, your ambitions to pursue the good and dominates your will. 
in other words, you know, you say to yourself that you're doing this um, out of good motives, but actually, lo and behold, coincidentally, it's serving your own uh, self-interest very handsomely indeed. And you think that is standard human behavior. We do that all the time. This is the key difference between Kant and the philosophers who came before him. Instead of looking at the goal of an action, he's looking to the motive as an indicator of morality. But nonetheless, there is uh, somewhere, let's just say in the human soul, in the human side, in, in reason, uh, there is a jewel. Uh, and that jewel is, the, is, the, is really the possibility of subordinating one's will to um, purely motivated um, actions. So it is possible to act morally, but rarely do we act in this way. And another final, incredibly important uh, dimension to Kant's thinking is its historical dimension. His interest is really in given the enormous struggle that uh, we face in um, acting morally, um, what's notable is um, it's necessary to believe that we're getting better at it. So he's very much interested in the historical development or potential historical development of human moral aptitudes, because in the short term, we're not doing well at all. And by the way, his perspective here is absolutely world historical. That's to say, the, the, um, the, the scheme on which he imagines human morality developing is, is not merely the thousands of years. I mean, I mean, I mean it's the many millennia. You know, so he very much projects this forward because he thinks we've been doing this for millennia and look how bad we're doing. Back to his motivation, um, he he doesn't believe morality can be based on contingency, on individual whim, on preference, on sensibility. Um, he wants a firmer foundation, um, one I presume that would be unchanged um, over time. Maybe our ability to um, live up to that moral law can change, but like the law itself should be should be more firm. How does he solve that problem of, um, I guess, relativism? Yes. Well, um, Kant says, in the end, actually, we would all agree that if it's to be a moral norm, uh, it must be normative. Um, and therefore, um, it has to have the shape of a law. It must be an objective law. Um, and in all our requirements of other human beings and um, expectations, that that is what we expect of them, that they would um, subordinate their wills to, um, you know, a universalizable norm. Um, so whilst this in the history of philosophy is a controversial perspective, um, in the history of human behavior, in a way, it's not. Um, so the demand for um, the moral law has always been there, even if, of course, our moral behaviors have clearly changed over time. And I think Kant's point is not that all behaviors remain static, but that there be a tribunal against which one can judge behaviors. Um, so there must be... Um, there must be a foundational standard against which moral duties can be judged. When it comes to understanding morality, Kant wasn't interested in prescribing what we should do. He wanted a way for us to see if our actions were moral. And his answer is, um, well, um, um, we can secure that only in terms of the supreme principle of morality, a phrase that I mentioned before. And the supreme principle of morality resides in uh, another principle, the principle of the good will. 
and um, Kant therefore goes on to explicate what um, the goodwill is. Um, and he says, of course, we all have a sense of this. Um, that is to say, um, to give one of his, his examples, is the example of the merchant or the shopkeeper. The shopkeeper uh, might treat their customers honestly, because honesty is the best policy. Uh, in other words, because honesty serves the shopkeeper well. Um, so if I tell you the story about the shopkeeper who did the right thing, but for these crude motives, you would yourself, Kant says, uh, you would yourself see this is not good uh, because it's not done from the goodwill. Uh, it's not done out of goodwill. However, if the shopkeeper um, treats um, their customers well, because it's the right thing to do, then we understand that as a moral action. So the goodwill is, uh, as Kant explains it, action from duty. Uh, so not for the sake of duty, but action from the motive of uh, duty. So I guess goodwill is doing things for the right reason? Yes. And the right reason is the thing within you know is right? There's a, there's a lot in what you ask. And of course, this is very complicated. But just to say, just to at least to explicate what Kant is on about a bit more clearly, um, let, let's go back to other of his examples. So I said he gives various examples. I gave you the example of the shopkeeper. He then has the example of the naturally sympathetic character. Um, so if you're in, you know, some of us do, we do have different sensibilities and some people, it gives them pleasure you know, to, um, you know, to to distribute gifts. It gives um, them pleasure to bring people out to dinner, you know, general uh, garrulity and uh, camaraderie and sociability. But um, it, it, let's say it's a duty. Let's agree it's a duty to help others in distress. Now, that's something con concrete. Kant's point is as follows. If, if you do that merely out of how you feel at time T4, um, today you might feel enormously sympathetic, tomorrow maybe not. Some people uh, are depressive, they don't feel very sympathetic at all. Um, some people have had a really bad life. He Kant is very keen to avoid moral luck. He's very keen to argue that it's not a matter of the accidents of your sensibility. Some people have a brutalized life. We cannot uh, blame them because they're not feeling um, so buoyant with the joys of spring as they go around, go around sprinkling gifts upon um, strangers. So he wants to say exactly that cannot be a norm. But we can, we can ask ourselves the question, am I, am I contributing to charity because that's right to do? Or is it simply because it makes me feel good? So there's a concrete example. So this would so this would be to say, um, you know, your cousin who blesses the lives of everyone, they were born that way, they love serving and caring and, and, and giving. But actually she does it for the praise of everyone else. Um, because she she likes to be esteemed. Um and then uh my uncle who's surly and depressed and was abused, um when he calls gruffly and says how's it going but he willed that he's more moral than the cousin for sure first of all you had her you had her doing it because uh, she seeks praise as far as Kant is concerned either she's not seeking any praise but it makes her feel good because she's 
you know, you know, gift giving can be a pleasure, you know. Um, so it can be just for the for the pleasure of the sympathy. It doesn't have to be for the pleasure of the. Um, it doesn't have to be the amour propre, as it were. It doesn't have to be the regard you get in the eyes of the other uh, of others. He does not believe that moral action is derived by um, simply rationally restraining all your instincts and your inclinations. Um, you 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 cannot not have incl- inclinations. You are still um, a sensible animal. And um, no part of you could avoid um, um, pursuing happiness. That is just, as it were, in the DNA of the human being. We are pursuing happiness all the time. His point is that you must always check that. Um, so if you want to know th- if this course to happiness is correct, you act or you ask, are you doing it from duty? Kant believes that when you act from reason and not inclination, you act morally. This is what he calls acting from duty. But lots of other philosophers took issue with this idea. I mean, many critics of Kant say that the formalism of of Kantian uh, morality is um, empty. It's vacuous. Um, so you, uh, you 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 act you do the dutiful thing by acting out of duty. And what's duty? You're still left with this empty content in the end. Kant expands on this in several formulations. One of the formulations is called the formulation of um, uh, humanity. And that is, that is um, 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 stated as follows. Um, so act that the um, maxim of your um, action involves um, treating others, other people, um, never merely as a means, but always also as an end. So now there you have a value. You can't treat other people instrumentally. Right. So now uh, we began with, well, this is just sort of vacuous abstractionism of duty is duty for the sake of duty. But the duty that is duty for the sake of duty is also including not treating other people merely as means. Incidentally, the form, the full formulation is, I mean, it is the way I put it, but people often phrase it as um, treat people as ends, not means. It's not actually treat people as ends, not means. It's treat people um always also as ends, never merely as means. Because, of course, we have to treat people as means in life. I mean, you know, I buy things from you. We have cash exchange. We do use each other. But it's never merely, I'm never merely treating you um, as a means. I, I see, I see my humanity includes recognising that you have uh, human characteristics, that you're a human being. And that is a fundamental... So that is the foundation, really, of morality, seeing that other human beings are sites of self-regulating freedom. When Kant published Groundwork on the Metaphysics of Morals in 1785, it was immediately well-received. By this point, Kant had already made a name for himself as a respectable philosopher. This text quickly became one of the most important philosophical texts of his time and its influence extends to today. How has it, how has it made a mark in our world? Um, how, has it, how has it changed things that we recognize today? People did uh, try to critically engage, uh, but he also very rapidly had um, followers. So the Neo-Kantian tradition starts immediately. Um, the the, the um, critics, though, included some extraordinary figures themselves, including three um, students who were um, together um, in a um, 
Stiftung, a theological seminary in Tübingen in the 1790s, uh, and their names are Schelling um, and um, Hegel um, and Hölderlin, uh, the poet. Uh, but the poet also took an interest in philosophy, and all three of them became some sort of species of Neo-Kantian. Um, they were uh, students of theology together in southern Germany, um, in the early days of um, the sort of um, Kantian frenzy, so he was the big, he was the, he was the um, the biggest story in town, and so they got down to studying him. These three students of Kant were not students in the sense that they studied directly with him; they were more like followers of his. The most influential was Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, a German philosopher and the most important figure in German idealism. And the most important follower of Hegel was Karl Marx the great theorist of communism. So the legacy of Kant to that extent is sort of not one would have, not one would have spontaneously um, recognized if one went just through the subsequent history of moral philosophy, because that's normally told as a story of subsequent to Kant, there is the rise of uh, utilitarianism and subsequent with Mill, and subsequent uh, to that, there is um, the rise of intuitionism in early 20th century uh, British uh, moral thought. So that's the normal, you know, studying philosophy as an undergraduate, that's the sort of path um, that one carves out. But actually, the the um, path of Kantianism is um, is through Hegelianism. So there are these um, indirect routes. Otherwise, if one doesn't recognize that subsequent um, German uh, neo uh, Kantian neo Hegelian um, tradition, um, one would be left with really the revival of um, Kant's moral thought um, in the latter part of the twentieth century. Since 1945, there's been, you know, this enormous way, many waves of liberation, um, colonial territories, um, various minorities within Western societies, um, different expressions of, you know, gender, race, sexuality, etc. Do you think there's a link between these efforts at liberation and freedom to some of Kant's theories of morality? I think uh, there's two things worth saying. First of all, Kant, through um, his albeit highly complex uh, reception, does permeate our culture. I mean, just the very phrase, uh, don't treat people uh, merely as ends, um, but, you know, is certainly um, ex- prominent in um in uh, feminist doctrine. And one source there would obviously uh, be de Beauvoir, who was influenced by Hegel, who is, as I said, um, a species of Neo-Kantian. So one can do some charting there. But there's also the extent to which, um, as um, actually Hegel would put it, Kant was, um, was in a very sophisticated way, um, registering some of the cultural um, shifts of um, modern European society altogether. So, you know, uh, there's a sense in which Kant is a natural development of Protestantism in the age of the French Revolution, you know. Um, so the idea of prescribing norms to oneself is the sort of very foundation of the um, French um, 
constitutionalist uh, revolution. Yeah, we are we we are now um, going to give a constitution to ourselves is a sort of political um, equivalent of we are, we are morally going to give norms to ourselves. Um, so um, that's um, you know a seventeen eighteen nine moment of self determination. Um, and self-determination, in a way, is another way of f- phrasing the, the um, um, Kantian term autonomy. And the two of them, uh, autonomy and self-determination, capture a lot of um, modern cultural movements, just as you're saying. Of course, there is a big problem there, which is at which point does self-determination um, and or autonomy devolve into merely um, the things I want? For Kant, acting from this place would not result in moral actions. And without Kant, we might not have the tools to measure our actions against morality. This text changed the world by obliging modern philosophical culture to rethink what the foundations of human value um, are, first of all, and second of all, to uh, populate that question with a specific core value the value of humanity, or otherwise known as treating other peoples as um, always also ends, never merely as means. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Du. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.